Welcome back, everyone. I'm Amber. And I'm Nichelle, and this is Let's Talk Murder. In today's episode, we will be discussing the solved case of the McStay family. Before we get started, let's talk about who the victims were. 40-year-old Joseph McStay and his wife, 43-year-old Summer, moved to Fallbrook in California in 2009 with their two young children, three-year-old Joseph Jr. and four-year-old Gianni. Now, Summer worked as a real estate agent, and Joseph was an entrepreneur. He had his own company, which made custom high-end water features, such as water fountains. The mixed stays were a really happy couple who everyone said was madly in love with each other. They decided to settle down and lay some roots and renovate their dream home. And to them, Fallbrook was the perfect place for them. The couple and their children really were just the perfect family looking from the outside. This brings up the question of how exactly this perfect family disappeared within a few months of being there. Also, what happened on the 4th of February, and why did it take a total of 11 days for this family to be reported missing? The date was February 4th, 2009, and it started out just like any normal day. Summer was at home with the children and working on some renovations that had been happening at the house while Joseph had left for a business meeting. He met with his business partner, a guy by the name of Charles Merritt, and Charles also happened to go by Chase, so you might have heard his name referred to as Chase, if you've heard this, if this isn't the first time you've heard this story. So, Charles said that the two met at Chick-fil-A and that the meeting seemed to have went fine. And after the meeting, Joseph had left and went home. Well, Joseph and Charles spoke throughout the day a few different times. And around 8.40 that night, Joseph tried to call Charles, but he didn't answer his phone. Over the next five days, the McStay family did not reach out or make any phone calls. That seemed to worry his friends and family because they did try to reach out to Summer and Joseph, but had no luck reaching them. Joseph's father, Patrick, tried calling him multiple times during those five days because he had a close relationship with his son and then two normally talked every single day. So Patrick got worried that maybe something had happened since Joseph had not called him back or replied to any of the text messages that he had been sending him. But Patrick wasn't the one that seemed to be overly worried. It was Charles, the business partner, that reached out to Joseph's brother Michael on February 9th, telling Michael that he had not been able to contact Joseph, and this made him very concerned. 
So after speaking to Charles, Michael reached out to his family, and that's when the family realized that Joseph and his family were missing. Even though the family had seemed to think they were missing, no one reported them missing. Patrick and the family said that they were trying to stay optimistic and hoped that Joseph had just taken the family on a vacation. Even though Joseph spoke to Patrick every day, Patrick said maybe it was a last-minute plan or he had just forgotten to tell his father about the vacation. If they were on a vacation, there's a chance that they didn't have reception at the resort or hotel or wherever they may have went. And it wasn't unusual for the family to go on short trips together. So this could very well have been what happened. And Patrick and his family were staying optimistic about that, that that's what happened. So Joseph's mother, Susan, did start growing concerned that maybe something wasn't right. And she had asked Charles if he could go and check on the family's home to see if there was anything that seemed abnormal. You know, just going to check to see, you know, if something's out of place or just if the place seemed off. Once Charles arrived at Joseph's house, the only thing that he could find that was out of the ordinary was the family's two dogs, Bear and Diggy, were freely roaming in the backyard, and this was something the family never did while they were away. Michael had seen that the dog's bowl had been filled by someone, so he moved the bowl to a different part of the yard so that when he returns the next day, he'll be able to tell if someone is caring for the two dogs. And when Michael returned the next day, he found that the bowl was filled by someone and had been moved so it showed him that someone was indeed caring for the dogs and this helped ease his mind a little bit since the dogs were being taken care of someone had to know the family wasn't home this time he leaves a letter for whoever was caring for the dogs and in the letter he let the person know that he was joseph's brother and that he was very concerned about the family and he left his number for them to call them the next day, one of the neighbors got concerned and called the, for a welfare check on Joseph and his family. And animal control had been contacted with Michael as well because someone had called saying that the two dogs were left behind and no one was caring for them. So the animal control person was actually the one that was moving the dog bowls and filling them in hopes that the family was just out for a couple days and that they were going to come right back. So once the police arrived to the house, they looked around and said nothing seemed out of place or looked suspicious. So they just left and assumed that the family was fine and that they just weren't home at the time. On February 13th, which was nine days after the last time anyone had heard from the family, Susan was really worried and just couldn't sit by anymore and not have answers as to where her son and his family had went. So she speaks to Michael and has him go to the house. And he she tells him to find a way inside to see if there's any sign of where they had went. 
you know, like maybe they left something behind to show where they were going or just there had to be something somewhere and she just needed to find it. So before he goes to the house, Michael calls Charles and asks him to go with him to the house. So Michael and Charles get to the house and they find that the doors are locked. Everything looks good, but they do happen to find an unlocked window. And this is how they were able to get in the house. So when they got in the house, they said it was a mess. The family had left food, like eggs and apples and stuff on the counter. And there was popcorn on the couch. And they were even clothes just thrown around. So at this point, they knew that the family must have been in a hurry to just get out of the house. But why? It was at this point that Charles was like, hey, we should really call and report them missing. Something isn't right here. But Michael is actually like, no, let's just hold off for a few more days. And his reason is so bizarre to me. Michael said that after 10 days of someone being missing, the police would bring in the homicide team. Like, this really threw me off because if you're... At this point, thinking that you need a homicide team, then you clearly think there's something wrong with your brother and his family. So why are you holding off more days when you could potentially be prolonging the inevitable and people could be searching for them now and not waiting till later? So I do not understand that reasoning at all, but they did. Um... Wait, and on February 15th, which happens to be 11 days after the family had went missing, Michael finally decides to contact the police department and report Joseph and the family missing. A couple of officers had met Michael at Joseph's house, but they were unable to enter the home because they did not have a search warrant. So even though Michael was saying, hey, I can let you in, there's something wrong, they legally could not go in because it wasn't Michael's house. So, I mean, if Michael would have called them, you know, days ago when they got in the house, then the search warrant would already be ready and they would be able to go into the enter the house now, but they now have to wait four days. And I'm so confused as to how they could say that the house doesn't look like a crime scene because if they weren't able to go inside the home, how do they know what the home looks like? Like, all they see is the outside. But they're saying that it doesn't look like a crime scene, so they can't go in. But I'm still confused because that doesn't make sense to me at all. This case, however, does end up getting sent over to the homicide team because it was past 11 days since the family had went missing. And that still creeps me out that Michael knew that and chose to wait, but... Anyway, while they waited the four days for the search warrant, Michael and Susan were actually given permission by investigators to enter the home and clean up. I mean, really, they could have been messing up things or contaminating the scene, or I really don't know what the investigators were thinking. But once in the house, Susan cleaned the counter where all the food was sitting out. And I mean, at that point, you don't know if it's really all their food or it could have been somebody that had went in the home 
But there's so much evidence that she could have potentially thrown away while she was cleaning. And Michael even took Joseph's laptop and his SD card home with him to search to see if there's anything he could find. Again, things like this blow my mind because if they had a missing person and the laptop could help in the case, why would the police let Michael just take it home? Because I'm not saying Michael was involved in it, but at this point, they don't know that. So if Michael was told to make sure that he had it back before the search warrant, the search warrant was issued, that means Michael could have done anything to the laptop. Cleaned it, like took files out of it, just like made things disappear. He had plenty of time to get rid of whatever evidence that was on the computer. If he had been involved, which again, I'm not saying he was, but I'm just pointing out the fact that he should have never been allowed to take the laptop. And while the family is doing their own investigation, they wait for the search warrant to be issued and they find out that the neighbor actually had security footage from their garage that shows the family's SUV leaving the night that Charles and Joseph had met. And the vehicle leaves at 7.37 p.m. Now, keep in mind that even though the family left at 7.37 that night, he still called Charles at 8.40, which is, was just one hour after they reportedly left the house. Once Susan sees inside the house and sees the footage of the SUV leaving, she has concerns that maybe the family was taken against their will. She said that the family leaving that late at night was not something they would normally do, especially leaving the dogs behind and leaving the house a mess. My thought on this is, if she was sure that somebody had taken them against their will, why would she not watch more of the neighbor's footage? Because if she was able to see that the SUV left, then she could see that no other vehicle was seen at the home or someone could have walked up to the house. Like, there's more to it. And I would have been asking, like, other neighbors to see. So, um, I mean, to me, that's the only thing that would make sense. If you assume somebody took them, Joseph didn't bring them home with him when he came home from the meeting, then that means they would have had to bring their self to the home. Another thing that made Susan question if they left against their will was that the children's strollers, glasses, and other important items were left at home, which was not usual at all. Like, it's a huge red flag for her. There is something terribly wrong in this situation, and she's just searching for any possible answer that she could find. So on February 19th, the search warrant is finally issued and investigators were able to go in the home. After checking the home, investigators confirmed that there was no forced entry and it didn't seem to look like any foul play was involved. Which, while they were searching the upstairs, investigators found lamps that had been knocked over and drawers that were open, but there was no sign of anything taken. But it also looked like the family was packing luggage for some reason. And I'm not sure how the lamps on the floor 
were not foul play, but they didn't seem to think that it was anything to be concerned about. So they decide that the next step is to report the family's SUV missing in hopes that they're able to track the family down that way. Once the SUV was reported missing, they received a call that the SUV had been towed from a shopping mall that was very close to the Mexican border and that it had been parked at the shopping mall between the hours of 5.30 and 7 p.m. on the day that the family had went missing. There was new toys and blankets that were found in the cargo area. So the police were guessing that the family had just ran off to Mexico when they had ditched the SUV and all their family and friends. There was evidence that the family had Google trips to Mexico or passports for children on Joseph's computer. You know, the one that they allowed Michael to have. But first, it wouldn't be helpful to get around in Mexico if they weren't driving their SUV, right? Like, that would make sense to me. Yeah. Like, if i am got a three and, what, a two and three-year-old? Yeah. Like, I would not Wait, just... three or four-year-old. Three or four-year-old. I would not just walk across the Mexican border <laughs> into a foreign country to me and, like, well, let's just leave our car in America. That does not... That does not make sense to me. But as Joseph was close to his family, wouldn't he have told them and not just cut them off completely? Like, he had a great relationship with them until, like, he has to be in some kind of danger if he's just willing to not talk to them about anything. So, I'm not sure the reason why the police decided this, but... That's what they decided. And even though the police felt that this happened, Joseph's family was not having it. And they knew that this would not happen. There's no way the family would just get up and leave without reason. And investigators were still investigating everyone that they could, including all of Joseph's company employees, in case they had not, in fact, ran away to Mexico. Once the media got a hold of the information, people began to hand out flyers and taping missing posters to the, like, light post, and radio stations were talking and covering the case, and this helped investigators receive a number of calls and emails um, of possible sightings of the family. And the investigators had followed all the leads that came in, but they always seemed to come up short. They interviewed his business partner, Charles, who had also been the one that was the first to be concerned about him missing. And also, the man by the name of Dan Cavanaugh. Dan was one of the first employees of Joseph and Charles, that they had ever hired, and he even helped Joseph with the company's website and pretty much dealt with all the tech issues that the business had. Investigators took DNA samples from quite a few people that they considered to be suspects, and while investigating the company, they discovered that there was actually the company was actually very successful 
and was bringing in nearly a million dollars a year. So to me, the family disappearing could have been connected to the amount of money that it was bringing in. People do crazy things for money. But the international, like the Mexican police was also told to keep an eye out for the family since they could possibly be in Mexico. And on March 5th, investigators received what they thought was a breakthrough in the case because investigators received footage from the Mexican border that shows a family of four walking through the border checkpoint on February 8th. However, the footage was so blurry, you cannot see their faces. It could have been the next day family, but it also could have been any other family of four. The footage was just four days after the family had left their home, but it was four days before, and their SUV was spotted at the shopping mall and taken away. Where were they for four days if this was potentially them? And after seeing the footage and sighting of the family and having sightings reported of the family in Mexico, the police were convinced that Joseph and the family had indeed just went to Mexico. So they pretty much stopped the investigation there. However, Susan and Patrick were like, nope, that can't be them. They'd never do this. Something just was not right. And even Charles stated that Joseph was a lot taller than the man in the video footage compared to Summer. So he's saying, like, that can't be him because their height difference, there's no way. So Patrick was convinced that if they were caught on video footage that that close to the border, that they would have been on another camera as well, since there were many surveillance cameras in that area. However, they were never seen on any other footage cam other than that one. So Patrick then calls his friend Tim Miller, who lives in Texas. And Tim had founded a search and rescue organization. So Patrick had asked him if he could help locate his son and family because he didn't believe that the family was ever in Mexico. So Tim teamed up with Stephen Watts and went to investigate the family's home and they were so dumbfounded by what they found when they were there. When they seen the shape of the home, I mean, there was clothes thrown everywhere. I mean, the food was gone because Susan had thrown it out, but they were told, you know, like, hey, there were food here and just... They could not figure out why the home was not be being considered a crime scene. And they had no clue as to why investigators were allowing people into the home. By April, the family had just suspected the worst. You know, they just decided at this point the family probably wasn't going to come home. And, I mean, it was hard for them to get to that point. But they they knew that something terrible had to have happened. This is when the FBI got involved in the case. And even though people were searching for the family in Mexico and the investigators were so convinced that the family had just went to Mexico, that is not what the FBI decided. When 
the FBI was handed the case fully in 2013, they were baffled, just like Tim, as to how the family disappeared in thin air and that there was no sign of them anywhere and no bodies being found. And the way that the investigation had taken place at the home and people being allowed in there, they were just very upset with the way that it was handled. And there had been some crazy theories, one being that Summer had killed Joseph and took the kids and left. And my issue with this is she would have had to have left his body behind or some kind of blood or, you know, like some kind of evidence, possibly, as to what's going on. And, I mean, they only had the SUV leave, so wouldn't they have checked the SUV? Would they not have seen, like, some kind like, did they just not check it at all? Which later you'll get your answer to that. <laughs> um, so, some something that caused the people to feel that this theory was possible was because weeks before the family had disappeared, Joseph had came down with some mysterious illness that caused him to become dizzy, and he just didn't feel well, and he didn't look well, so some felt that maybe Summer was poisoning him. And once he died, that she took the kids to Mexico. Again, I don't know why she would have left the SUV. So, Charles said that Joseph had a son that was not Summers, and when he would go visit him, Summer would not be happy about it. He said that she felt that him being with his other son was taking away time from the two children that they had together, and that this had started issues in between Joseph and Susan, and Patrick and Susan were not believing this. They could not see Summer doing anything to her husband. So, by the time that, you know, the FBI had taken it completely over, it had been four years since the family had disappeared and pretty much had went cold due to no evidence being found to help in the case. On November 11th, 2013, around 10 a.m., a motorcyclist was driving through the Mojave Desert and called 911 to report that he had found what he believed to be a human skull. So, when investigators arrived to the site of the human skull, they also found two shallow graves, which contained four bodies, two adults and two children, along with a sledgehammer. It was reported that anthropologists and a team of diggers came out and spent multiple days and countless hours gently uncovering and logging the remains. And the sledgehammer was also reported to be the murder weapon. And the bodies had completely decomposed, so they had to use dental records to identify the victims. And this took four days to get the results. On November 15, 2013, the adult remains were positively identified as Joseph and Summer McStay. Since the bodies were positively identified, they only assumed the two children's remains that were found were those of the two McStay children. There was also a white extension cord that was wrapped around Joseph's neck 
And after investigators seen the body and the items at the grave site, it was determined that Joseph and Summer were murdered by blunt force trauma to the head. And one of the younger boys had been hit in the head by a hammer and estimated of seven times. Now this is absolutely sickening to me because that is an innocent child that did nothing wrong. So you are going to hit him in the head with a hammer seven times. There's something seriously sickly wrong with you. Like only a monster could do something like that. Once the bodies were identified, the case was handed over to San Bernardino Sheriff's Department. Due to them having jurisdiction over the area, the remains were found. And once they took over, the first thing they did was perform an analyst of the family's SUV. Because guess what? When it was found and it was towed away, they never looked at it because they thought the family just ran away to Mexico. So they never checked for anything. Because the police department did a terrible, terrible job investigating this case. Now remember back at the beginning when the investigators took the DNA of potential suspects? One of them was Charles, and it turns out that his DNA was in the SUV. And he was given a lie detector test and passed it, but it was throughout because they had no reason to believe that there was any foul play or anything was wrong. And one thing that the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department had going for them was that the area in the desert where the remains were found is pretty remote. Um, it didn't have a lot of traffic going through it, so it was easy to preserve evidence because there was like nobody going through there to contaminate it or mess it up. So while they were investigating the area, they found tire tracks that just so happened to match the tires of the vehicle that Charles drove. Yeah. And they also found out that Charles was very familiar with that part of the desert because that's where he spent a lot of time as a child. And his sister didn't live very far from where the remains were found. So they really started looking into Charles and they were able to find phone records that, like, they pinged him at the location of the gravesite, And so they were pretty sure that he was the killer. So after investigating Charles and getting more information, they found out that he had financial issues. And Charles had gotten pretty upset that Joseph's company was doing so well, you know, making a little over a million a year. But Charles himself wasn't really seeing a lot of the money in return. And he had even said that he had asked Joseph to lend him money multiple different times. And Joseph actually started tracking all the times that Charles borrowed money on a spreadsheet. And it was said that Charles actually owed Joseph around 20000 But this can't be confirmed because he also, like, whenever uh, they had customers upset or whatever, like, there were multiple different places where he was giving like taking out to give Charles money to help him. So um, some report that it was really close to 100000 But investigators also discovered that the day 
Joseph and the family had went missing, Charles actually forged a check from Joseph to him. And that he had a long list of criminal records, including burglary and even trespassing before. And remember the Chick-fil-A meeting that Charles said he had that went really well? Well, it didn't turn out really well. The two men had actually got into a huge argument over a massive charge that he, they had from a faulty fountain. So Charles was in charge of helping like install the fountains. And he was doing such a crappy job that they weren't working properly. So then Joseph had to give the money back to the customer. And like Charles is just causing a lot of issues. And Joseph was trying to be nice and, you know, like help his buddy out and like, but Joseph had gotten angry due to that fountain because Charles was the one that messed it all up. So he was telling Charles that you either give me the money that I'm losing out on or you go fix it because, you know, like you're the one that screwed it up. It's your problem. Go fix it. And Patrick stated that he had spoke about, that Joseph had spoke about Charles over the last year before the family went missing, stating that he was talking about cutting him out of the business and hiring someone else to, like, help with it because of how much was getting messed up by Charles. But Charles had a gambling issue and, you know, all the money that he owed Joseph, Joseph wanted to keep him close, which, I mean... I guess if you're the one signing his paychecks, you would be able to possibly get your money back that he owes you. So that was his reasoning to keep him around. And he just wanted to keep an eye on him. So later, after, um, you know, they determined that Charles was the one that um, killed the family. They found out that Joseph had found out that Charles was not only, like, borrowing money from him. He was also embezzling it from the company. And the meeting that they had, he had told him that they, that, you know, like, hey, I know this is going on. I'm going to call the police. So, in a fit of rage, he goes to the McStay's family home. Kills them all. Cleans up whatever messes that he does make. And then takes the body and buries them in the desert. Now phone records actually show he was at the gravesite on February 6th. Which was two days after the family went missing. So the question is, did he take them and kill them later? Or did he kill them before he took them? But in the process... Of the two days, like, where were the people or the bodies? That really wasn't um, found to be, like, there. there's no real answer to that. But after the bodies were buried, he actually went back to the home and drove the SUV to the shopping mall close to the border. And on November, like, in November of 2014... Charles was arrested and charged with four counts of murder. 
and Charles at that time was facing the death penalty. And he fired five attorneys before the trial even started. And he also made a claim that he was dying from congestive heart failure, which delayed the trial because, I mean, obviously they don't want him dying if he's going to trial, but they found out that that was false and that he really wasn't sick. So during the trial, the defense team tried to push blame on, you know, remember Dan, the one that helped uh, create the website? Um, they were pushing it off on him, saying that Dan was the one withdrawing money from the business accounts and had been arguing with Joseph days leading up to the family's disappearance. So just push blame on Dan. You know, like this is all Dan's fault. Charles has been concerned the whole time. Charles is the one that's like, hey, something's wrong. Let's look for them. So they're trying to say, like, he was so involved in trying to help find his friend that there's no way it could have been him. Which, really, he could have just been helping to not find what he really left behind or whatever. So the defense team had then said Joseph was talking about buying Dan out of the business and making Dan very upset. But lucky for Dan, there was no evidence to point at him. But there was evidence and motive against Charles. And it was enough to convince the jury that Charles was guilty. Both the defense and the prosecution team had both had intelligent arguments, as well as interesting testimonies. But the jury took three days before coming back with a guilty verdict. And on January 21st, 2020, Charles was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Joseph, along with the death penalty by lethal injection for the murders of Summer and the two younger boys. As of right now, Charles is on death row in California, and Charles has claimed that he was innocent from the start, and he is still to this day maintained that he is innocent. He's not like showing any remorse from doing it. Like he just isn't showing any sign, even though he was found guilty. And this case is truly heartbreaking, and it makes you wonder, like how he did it. I mean, you would have to take them out one by one, right? Like, does he strangle Joseph first? Or, like, how is there not fighting back? Like, how is there not evidence of a fight? But then again, there might have been, and they just weren't checking him out. And by the time they got to the bodies, there wasn't any... They were decomposing, so there's not going to be any evidence of, like, scratch marks or, you know, like... Um, and the fact that the children were just too little... To understand any of this. And it's truly sad that their lives were shortened by a monster with a gambling problem. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.